they came to the crest of the hill, Kanduduman stopped his chariot. There it was. It was magnificent. He had traveled all the way down the Nile, through Egypt, and across the desert. And now he looked down to the temple at which he had come to worship. He knew the people passing were staring. He supposed it was as much because of his black skin as his obvious wealth. The latter, he knew, would draw the highest officials. It did at every temple he had visited. But this temple, this temple was different. Stories of Solomon, his wisdom, and the temple he built were still being repeated when he had left seven months ago and Solomon lived a thousand years ago. Some had said the new temple is even more magnificent. Some said not. But it wasn't the building that drew Tanutaman here. He knew, he knew there had to be one God above all gods. This Hebrew God could be the one. Even when there were no priests to keep the religion going, nor even a temple, Yahweh was there. And if there were one God above all others, above everything, then this is the kind of thing Tanudaman would expect to hear about him. So he learned all he could of this Yahweh from all the travelers that came to Ethiopia. Mostly it was the occasional Egyptian, and most of them had never actually been to Israel, let alone Jerusalem, and could only repeat what they had heard from others. Usually these others hadn't been there either, so the information was two, three, ten times removed. Tanudaman grew frustrated with the conflicting stories and finally determined to make the great journey himself. And now he was here. His heart surged within him. He was here. Would he finally find the truth? He nodded to his driver and the chariot lumbered forward. His retinue spread out behind him. He would suffer none to enter Jerusalem before him. Soon after passing the gates with much fanfare, they were forced by the narrow contorted streets to leave the chariot behind. But he had not put a foot on the ground before a contingent of priests was attending to him and his people. Tanudaman knew many languages, but not Hebrew. He had brought a translator from Egypt in case their Greek was inadequate. However, it seemed the man would be unnecessary as they introduced themselves in excellent Greek. And after the usual lengthy pleasantries, he moved to the point of his visit. I have come to examine your religion. I hope to discover if the God of the Hebrews is the one God above all gods. They hardly needed to answer. The pride on their faces showed they proclaimed precisely this. In fact, their leader said, God is one. Tanutaman slowly nodded and repeated the only Hebrew word he knew, Yahweh. Immediately they began to shout and cover their ears. They seemed angry, ready to go into a rage. He could not understand what they were shouting, so he turned to his translator. The reply nearly had to be bellowed. They are upset because you have said the name. I should have warned you, but I did not know that you knew the name. It is considered highly irreverent, nearly blasphemous to say the name, except in the most special circumstances. Tanudamam knew what to do. He dropped to his knees, bowed his head until his forehead was touching the ground. He began to shout, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. After a few minutes, the noise had quieted down, but he repeated his request for another full minute until all was still. 
Then he waited in the position of obeisance. After a few moments, one of the priests came close to him. You are ignorant of our ways? Yes, my father, please forgive me. Please teach me your ways. I wish to know more of the one who bears the name. He kept his face still in the dirt. The spokesman rejoined his colleagues, and Tanutaman knew from their quiet chatter that he had quelled the storm that they would, with caution, of course, agree to his request. Finally, they all approached again. Please rise, my lord. As Tanutaman rose to his feet, he contemplated the respect once again shown him. It was no surprise when they brought the man who would teach him forward, nor that the price they fixed was exorbitant, but it was of no consequence. The next morning he was in the house of this rabbi and asking every question he could think of. The rabbi outlined a course of training that would take two years to finish, but acquiesced to the inquiry method when Tanutaman explained the time constraints. After two weeks, he was convinced of the claims of the Hebrews for their God. So it was with deep conviction that one morning he requested from his teacher an audience with the priest for the purpose of aligning himself with this God and his people. He had already made his arrangements, and so the meeting took place that afternoon. Rabbis, I have become convinced that the one who bears the name, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one true God. I ask for the favor of worshiping in his temple and of bringing a priest back with me to teach our people of the true God. In return for this indulgence, I offer this gift for you, the priests of the Lord Most High, to use in his service. Tanutaman stepped to the side and waved his arm to signal the entrance of his men bearing litters bright with gold and jewels, fragrant with spices, and imitating the rainbow with priceless cloths. They placed all four, one after the other, in front of the priests. There were gasps and many nods of acceptance throughout the group. Tanutaman smiled as he knew he had achieved his goal. The highest priest among them stood and smiled gravely and bowed deeply. This gift is to God, and we are pleased to accept it for his use. We agree to accept you as a proselyte into Israel and to supply those who will teach your people our ways. I myself will agree to circumcise you so that you may worship in the temple. Tanudaman was shocked. Circumcise? Why, yes, you must be circumcised and then baptized, and then you can enter into the Gentile court of the temple. Circumcised and then baptized. I can be baptized, but as I have told you, I am the treasurer of Candace. I cannot be circumcised. If you will not be circumcised, then you cannot enter the temple. Tanutaman paused for a few moments. My teachers, it is not that I will not be circumcised. I can not be circumcised. I am the treasurer of Candace. It took a few moments as they murmured together before the truth began to dawn on them. One after the other, they looked at him with shocked expressions and backed away from him as if he was a leper. They were rapidly leaving, almost running away when one sh stood out from the others, pointed his finger at Tanutaman and shouted out in Hebrew. Confused, Tanutaman looked towards his translator. He did not expect to see what he did, a frightened reluctance to repeat what had been said. At his demand, the man quietly translated, the scriptures say, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The enormity of the statement was a blow to his heart. The very thing that had given him access to power in Ethiopia would now keep him from entering the temple of the one true God. In fact, it would keep him from being a part of his people. He knew not what to do. 
Finally, he did the only thing he could do. He turned to leave. To leave this meeting, to leave this place, to leave his hopes behind. But a man who had stood unnoticed at the side stepped into his path. Looking without fear, without judgment at Tanutaman, he spoke. The prophet Isaiah said, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. An easy smile creased his face, and then he was gone. Hours of contemplation later, he called for the translator, Acquire for me a copy of this prophet Isaiah's work. In Hebrew? Tanutamun was irritated. The man quoted in Greek. There must be a copy in Greek somewhere. Get it. Twenty-four hours and a goodly amount of the gold intended as a gift to the priests brought the work to his hands. He began reading immediately and was shocked to find their own prophet spoke against them. He began to understand that these priests who would not draw near him were descendants of priests who turned away from their own God. The prophet spoke against other nations as well, Babylon, Assyria, and more. Tanutaman was shocked to find his own Ethiopia warned as well. He was amused to read that one day his people would bring gifts of tribute to the place of the Lord of hosts. Well, he'd brought a pretty good one, but they had turned it down. According to this Isaiah, there was sure a lot of judging that was going to happen. But there was this man, or was it men, who were special and the day of the Lord. What is this day of the Lord? Tanutaman was acquiring more questions than answered, but these priests had rejected him. There would be no answers from them. So he prepared to leave Jerusalem and journey home. He would read as he traveled. It was difficult reading, so he read aloud as he went. The time passed rapidly, and they were soon in the desert. He read on. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Tanutaman was completely perplexed. And just at that moment, a lone traveler, a younger man, ran up to his chariot. Do you understand what you were reading? Tanutaman said, how can I, unless someone guides me? Come up, sit with me. 
About whom, I ask you? Does the prophet say this? About himself? Or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way, rejoicing. (laughs) Wow, what a story. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a wonderful development in the church, one that was foretold in a way by Jesus. Ancient Ethiopia, sometimes called Nubia or Cush, was referred to by many Greek scholars as the end of the world. (laughs) So the church has extended with this conversation to the end of the world, just like Jesus said. But there's much, much more to this amazing happening. This story is also wonderful because it shows that the first Gentile convert to Christianity is black, not white. (laughs) I've always thought it was funny that black Muslims called Christianity the white man's religion. (laughs) I actually sat with Andre Sims, my pastor at the time, and a young black woman considering Christ. She said, I don't mean to be rude, but why should I join a white man's religion? (laughs) Well, Dr. Sims, himself an African-American, laughed and he explained it to her. By the way, she did come to Christ and became actually a vibrant believer in Christ, quite a help in that church. But the race issue is no big thing here. Perhaps more fantastic is the overarching story of this man's conversation, a complete outcast of Israel who leaves crowded Jerusalem with all of its priests, travels to a deserted section of road and there finds Christ. (laughs) You know, who'd ever thought it? But there are actually three rejected persons in this story. Well, let's start with our Ethiopian brother so we can discuss the reality and the fiction I just read. His name, we have no idea, (laughs) actually at all. I use the name of a Nubian king, an Ethiopian king. The real Tanutaman was the last of a group that ruled so powerfully that their kingdom stretched all the way from South Africa all the way up north through Egypt and into the Middle East. Ancient Ethiopia was probably, in fact, one of the first great superpowers. By the time of our story, though, their kingdom no longer extended beyond their own borders. And speaking of borders, the modern ones aren't anywhere near the same (laughs) All these things have shifted dramatically over time. But actually, that's not really material to our discussion. Uh, His race does not play into the story as we here in America might think it would, although racial hatred was a reality, like between the Samaritans and the Israelites. There was none between the Jews and the blacks at all. Uh, Certainly, there was no thought of inferiority towards the children of Ham by the Israelis. Uh, In fact, much the opposite seems to be the case. They actually had a very high opinion of them. His position, particularly in his nation, do play critical roles. This will help explain some of the story. The Nubians had a very curious government structure. The king was regarded as the son of Re, the sun god, and as such menial tasks, like running the kingdom, (laughs) were considered beneath his dignity. 
So each king's mother became the ruling leader of the kingdom and had the title Candace. It was a title, not a name. But there was still a need for a powerful figure to rule with her, and this figure was almost always male, the keeper of the treasury. So we pretty quickly gather that the treasurer is much more than just a minister of finance. He holds enormous power in the kingdom. In fact, almost unlimited power. Now, men in power often want to set up their own dynasty, yes? So how could a king ensure this does not happen? Well, there's one easy solution. Make sure they can never have a son to replace the current king. This practice was common enough in the ancient world that to be called a treasurer was to be called a eunuch, especially in Nubia, but not to the Jews. That's why God put that strange law in the Old Testament. It really is in there. Yes, it excluded eunuchs from worshiping in the temple, but it also kept Jews from participating in this horrific practice. To finish the discussion of his position Maybe it'd be helpful to understand that as rare as it was for Jews to see a black man, it was probably rarer to see a chariot. Our Nubian brother was very, very wealthy. So a black, insanely rich eunuch in a chariot. (laughs) Probably no Jew alive had ever seen one. You should also know that our wealthy, powerful Ethiopian has studied extensively possibly under rabbis, but more likely he was simply an excellent scholar. We know this because of his question to Philip. Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Jewish scholars of the day offered three possibilities to that very question. Himself, the nation in a figurative sense, or the Messiah. Since he didn't apparently know the rabbis answered, he must have thought this out himself. So he's a pretty sharp thinker. But the most important characteristic of this man is that he was seeking. He went to Jerusalem to worship because he wanted to know the truth. With great effort, he learned to read so that he could find the truth. If I haven't told you this before, you should know that due to the time-consuming nature of handwriting everything, all the vowels are left out. All of the vowels. And there were no punctuation marks such as Suido. That's why almost everyone read aloud. It helped if you sounded out the words. A very accomplished reader might read a work silently if he had been through it three or four times. But even then, it's difficult. Even the great Hebrew scholars at the seminary I attended, like Drs. Estelle and Wilsey, they paused for a considerable time to consider Greek or especially Hebrew text before beginning to even comment on it, let alone read it. It was and is very difficult to read. Because he was seeking, our African friend, at significance and expense, purchased a copy of Isaiah. This was probably, uh, well, no, it wasn't. It, probably it was the most popular work of the day. And probably that's the reason he purchased it. It's doubtful he had any idea about the quote about eunuchs in there. But it did make a good story, right? (laughs) And it could have happened that way. The real treasurer obviously didn't know the prophecies about the Messiah were in Isaiah, or at least he didn't know enough to understand them. 
We do know, by the way, this is very interesting, he was reading the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The quote that Luke makes is from that translation rather than directly from the Hebrew. And it matters. These translators did a pretty terrible job of moving that particular text into Greek. It's actually horrible. They just they, they massacred it. <laughs> and this prophecy is hard enough to understand in, if you read in Hebrew, so a bad translation makes it worse. But even then, it was enough for Philip to show him Christ. In other words, don't sweat which translation people are reading. If they're reading the Bible at all, that's good enough. <laughs> if they're seeking, then they'll eventually get it. So don't worry about that. It is fascinating to note that our African hero neither experiences nor knows of any divine intervention until after he asks to be baptized. No miracle draws him, just the wonderful story of Jesus. It's not until after he has taken this well-known step of integration into a community, in this case the church, that God gives him confirmation by miraculously spiriting Philip away I hope you enjoyed that pun. I, I, sometimes it's really fun to write sermons. I kind of like that one. Never mind. Okay. <clears throat> the last thing we should know about our Ethiopian friend. He went on his way with joy. The resurrection of Jesus makes possible our resurrection. And this bright man would have understood that, especially after Philip's instruction. And he would have known that this new life would be in perfection. See, we don't know whether he had a choice in being made a eunuch or how old he was when it was affected. He, he may have been just a child. But I will guarantee you that he must have lamented his condition. Everywhere he went, people knew he was marred. And he knew they knew. His political power and wealth is his only because he was an incomplete man never could have a wife, never could hold his own children. His whole life was marred and scarred. But that was then. Now he has a new life. And one day he will have a perfect life, a life where all things are made new. It's not that his circumstances have changed yet, <laughs> but his spirit has, and now he has hope that brings with it joy. And there's a point to this. If we really understood the depth of our depravity, the nature of our sin, we would know that we are as marred and scarred as this Ethiopian. Our spirits are marred. Our souls are scarred. But that was then. If we really understand our salvation, we would truly rejoice like our brother. Our brother, the once rejected now accepted Ethiopian. But I said there were three rejected people, and you're wondering, who's the second? Well, Philip, of course. He was rejected by the high priest and his party and forced to leave Jerusalem along with all the other Hellenist Jews. But then he has this great ministry going. He's spreading joy everywhere he goes. Thousands are coming to Christ. People are being healed and set free. It's just wonderful. And then... An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. This is a desert, a deserted place. Here's our works. He's 25 miles north of Jerusalem, 
So this angel tells him to march back uphill to Jerusalem and then back down again to the outback, (laughs) to the middle of nowhere, to a deserted place. So Philip has to walk this entire 50 miles. It must have taken him days and he had no cell reception. So no tunes, no internet, no face, nothing. Days of walking and thinking. Now what would you think? Um, okay, God. I'm not sure why you took me away from all those people where everything was going so great and have sent me to where there's no one. <laughs> am I not supposed to be an evangelist? How am I going to evangelize with no one around? And yes, all right, you're quite correct. Philip wasn't worried about it much, I'm sure. He knew God too well. (laughs) He was probably just wondering what exactly God was going to do. But I bet he was like a horse in a starting gate when the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. But still, he's got to have had some butterflies in his stomach. I mean, think about it. He's seen maybe one or two other black people in his entire life, maybe. Probably about the same number of chariots. And this one is reading. Reading. You know how few people could read then? So Philip has to jump into the middle of a Bible study of a really rich guy from another part of the world who is highly educated. For what purpose? To tell him the truth. Which, of course, means he thinks this guy doesn't know the truth. (laughs) Remember, at this time in history, rich guys could eliminate anyone that annoyed them. Especially when they're out in the desert where no one would ever know what happened. And the people of Ethiopia were reported to be very tall and very strong. And men, well, men can have egos. (laughs) Philip was literally putting his life on the line when he interrupted the eunuch. But he finds a man who wants to know, who is seeking the truth. And sometime in the next 30 minutes, an hour, four hours, we don't know. He has the great privilege to welcome this man into the church and even to baptize him. Okay, today's rabbit trail. (laughs) Does verse 37 even exist in your Bible? It isn't in most modern translations. Maybe it's in brackets. In verse 36, the Ethiopian asked if he can be baptized. 37, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Almost every scholar agrees that this text was not in the original book of Acts that Luke wrote. (laughs) They almost all also agree that Philip and the eunuch probably said something just like these words. So why wouldn't Luke include them? Because everybody knew that they would have said them. He didn't need to repeat it. This was a very well-known Christian baptismal formula. Philip would certainly have asked a very pointed question to make sure, as much as a mere man can, that the Ethiopian truly believed, especially after that fiasco with Simon the Musician. So why did some pious, that is to say truly believing, scribe add these words to Luke's text? Probably less than a hundred years after he wrote it. Well, as F.F. Bruce said, There are some minds that cannot be content to leave such things to be inferred. (laughs) He just really believed he had to explain how it was done. Spell it out clearly. And the next scribe who copied his copy 
didn't know that this text was not in the original, so he included it as if as if Luke wrote it. Eh, just a just a fun little bit of history for you. Okay, back to the sermon. So now Philip joins the ranks of the only once in history group. Only once in history. Like Enoch being translated to heaven once in history. Like Elijah swept up in the whirlwind one time. Like Peter walking on the water. Nobody else did that but Jesus. Philip gets beamed up. Well, okay, over. <laughs> but Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Azotus is about 25 miles straight north of Gaza, kind of over from Jerusalem. So, why did God transport Philip? I mean, he made him walk all the way down to Gaza. Well, I think one part is, is a sign to the Ethiopian. And of course, also a sign to Philip. But also because of Philip's gifting. Did you notice what he did when he was beamed over? Yep, preach. <laughs> the man's an evangelist. And God right away put him back where he loved to be. He slowly works his way up the coast until he finally settles in Caesarea where he continues preaching. Sometime along the way, he gets married and has four daughters who themselves were chosen by God for a special work. So we've finished with Philip. And you're thinking, well, that's two. Who's the third person that was rejected? Let me give you some hints. He's the most important person in the story. He's in the story from start to finish. He, like the Ethiopian in Philip, was rejected by the priests. But when they rejected him, those priests lost all hope of salvation. You're thinking Jesus, aren't you? Nope. This person is the Holy Spirit. Some of the things he does are providential. They were arranged at the creation of the world and are brought about by the normal flow of human lives and natural events. Some are miraculous. They are purposeful alterations of the flow of nature by God. Let's rehearse some of them. He sends an angel to instruct Philip to go to Gaza. That's miraculous. He arranges for the Ethiopian to be at the right place at the right time. Well, that's providential. He instructs Philip to run close by the chariot. Miraculous. He has arranged for the eunuch to be reading just the right passage of Isaiah. Providential. He has trained Philip before this time so that he is able to answer the Ethiopian's question. Providential. They come across a pool of water in a nearly waterless land at just the right time. Providential. He transports Philip to where he wants him. Well, that is definitely miraculous. <laughs> Philip does what the Spirit gifted him to do and preaches his way up the coast. Providential. And, by the way, Peter, 20 years later, follows Philip to Caesarea just like he followed him to Samaria this time to usher the Greek-speaking Gentiles at Cornelius' house into the church. And the providential and miraculous are wed in this Gentile Pentecost, just as they were in the Samaritan Pen Pentecost Philip had so recently witnessed, and at the first Pentecost for the Jews that Philip probably was a part of. There is so much we can learn from this story. If you feel like you're an outcast, don't. Others may reject you, but God will not. Besides, if they rejected the Holy Spirit then, you know it isn't you they're rejecting now. It's the truth. 
the one who is truth. If you are searching, but just can't find the answers, keep trying. God will bring someone to you to explain his love. If it seems like you've traveled halfway around the world and now you find yourself in a desert place where you wonder what God would ever have for you in this lonely, dry world, hang on. He does have a plan. There's a reason you were in this place. Just wait for him to show you the way. And and if you have scars, maybe some that have plagued you all your life, maybe some you caused yourself and really regret, maybe some others caused and you had no choice, understand, it'll be okay. Jesus was rejected. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief and his soul made an offering for our guilt. And he shall see his offspring. He is risen, but we, his offspring, can have new life because of him. If he is your Lord, you will one day have a new life. Father, Son, and Spirit will make you new. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Even if your circumstances haven't changed, remember that the Holy Spirit has given you a new spirit. You are not the same person. And you have God on your side. So those circumstances, scars, they don't really matter anymore. You are a forever child. Look beyond the scars. Look beyond the circumstances. Look beyond where you are. And knowing to whom you belong, go on your way rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this Ethiopian man. We don't know hardly anything about him. We can guess some things from history. The scriptures give us a little info that he was a man ready. What we can tell from history, he brought, he brought belief in your son to Africa and that whole area was a strong Christian influence for more than a thousand years. It's amazing. One man. One man with scars. A man who certainly felt rejection. One man who felt acceptance and understood that he could be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. The real church. The church that will live forever. Because we belong to you, purchased by the blood of your Son. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We hope that you've enjoyed this message, first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. If you'd like to support us so we can do more, well, you'll have to work at it. We have no one-click button for giving on our webpage, southbeachhope.org. We are a tiny church in a small town and simply cannot afford either money or time to set up such a thing. But at least with our modern technology and with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and anyone around the world. Hopefully, we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.